Blog Talk Radio. National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and joining me today is Steve Hammond for a conversation about Nancy and William Syfax from Slavery to Freedom. Steve is a retired federal employee, having spent his entire 40 year career as an earth scientist with the United States Geological Survey. He swapped his full-time geology work for genealogy and family history research. And it's just so wonderful to learn that as part of his research, his big hobby started in grade school. Now, his goals are to educate and inspire others to document their own family history. And he is a seventh-generation member of the Syfax family of Washington, D.C. So let me just give just a warm welcome to Steve Hammond to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Steve. Hi, Bernice. Thank you very much for having me today. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you, and so I want you just to tell us, since you began your genealogy in grade school, just tell us how did all of this begin and why? Well, it all started with a couple of statements a cousin of mine mine made to me. Um, when I was uh, in junior high school, we used to go to uh, a cousin's house after church, and that's where she began to tell me about our family history. And, and one of the things that I remember first about her was that she, you know, asked me if, if I knew that we were connected to the first family, to George Washington. And I just basically looked at her and said, there is no way. You know, I just couldn't believe that that was the case. And that got me interested enough to ask more questions of her and to start thinking about, you know, is this true or is this something that's made up? And so for me, genealogy started right there uh, to try to start to think about how our family is connected to others. And the other thing that she reminded me of was that how important it is to, to get to know and to remember who your cousins and family really are. So, so that started me on this adventure. What a wonderful way to begin and to have somebody 
ask you that question and then move to the next level. So if that's what stimulated your interest, wow, what a wonderful opportunity to just start looking at it. So I mentioned, you know, that you are a seventh-generation member of the Syfax family of Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. So tell us about the Syfax family. Well, there is a lot of folklore associated with the Syfax family, and as I said, one of my goals is to try to uh, separate fact and fiction and folklore to try to pull together a narrative for the Syfax family that, that really ties some of these things together. Um, the folklore really goes back to William Stabler, who we believe was born around 1773. Our, our, uh, our folklore basically says that William Syfax came to Virginia from Canada. And I, I actually haven't been able to find much information about that particular activity, but if you consider that he was born in 1773, um, you know, we wonder whether or not perhaps his parents might have been sympathizers for the British and maybe had taken to Canada and he somehow found his way back. But at the very least, he found his way back to Canada. Uh, the other piece of family folklore that we have in, in our family is that William Stabler actually lived out at Mount Vernon. And while I haven't been able to actually place William Syfax there, we have pieces of information that suggest that he was uh, connected with uh, Mount Vernon in a couple of different ways. His son, Charles Syfax, who was born in about 1791, was owned by George Washington Park Custis, and that was Martha Washington's grandson by her first marriage. And uh, Charles Syfax actually was owned by George Washington Park Custis and taken with him to the Arlington House when he inherited property after his grandmother passed away. And during this period of time, George Washington Park Custis actually had a daughter with an enslaved woman. Uh, her name was Ariana Carter, and they had a daughter named Mariah. Mariah was born in about 1803. Uh, George Washington Park Custis basically moved to Mount, the Mount Vernon property, not to Mount Vernon, but to the Arlington property about 1802, 1803 with Mariah in tow. And as she grew older, uh, she and Charles fell in love. Charles actually was the butler in the, uh, the dining room for the mansion after it was built. And the two of them were married in the mansion with the uh, approval of George Washington Park Custis and his wife. They were married in 1821. And so it it really starts a very kind of long history about Charles and and others in the family. Um, Basically, he um, was able to marry her in the dining room. And about 10 years later, George Washington Park Custis' white daughter, Mary Custis, actually married Robert E. Lee. So Charles Syfax is the brother-in-law of Robert E. Lee. You know, when you just said that, I kind of jumped. What? <laughs> You're right. Yeah, that's a, it's a pretty amazing piece of information. It the is other a thing pretty that I, amazing piece of information. Absolutely. 
So I, I want to back up a little bit and tell you a little bit more about William Stabler. He was actually able to free himself uh, in 1817. He bought his own freedom, but it wasn't documented until about 1831. Uh, he actually worked with Quakers uh, that were, if, as you may know, the Quakers were very active in terms of abolitionist activities. You know, some of the first in the United States or in the colonies to really uh, talk about slavery being wrong, and they basically worked to try to free people. Uh, and there was a prominent Quaker in Alexandria named William Stabler. He actually was an apothecary shop owner. Excuse me, not William Stabler, Edward Stabler. Edward Stabler actually was an apothecary shop owner in Alexandria, Virginia. And it turns out that Edward Stabler actually was a, um, one of the signers of his manumission in 1831. And so William began, William uh, Syfax was freed. And after that, he began to work on freeing his own children. And ultimately, by 1835, he had freed his wife and five daughters. However, Charles, and it turns out my third great-grandmother, Nancy Syfax, had not been freed. One of the things I wanted to share with you, uh, Bernice, is a letter that I have come across with the help of a colleague there at the apothecary shop that was written in 1835. Can I read it? Oh, please, yes. So to provide re uh, listeners with a little bit of background, uh, William Syfax actually was an itinerant preacher at this time who was traveling up and down the East Coast. Uh, one of the pieces of folklore that we have is that William traveled a lot of different places. So it makes this concept of him being in Canada not that far-fetched. But there are a number of newspaper articles that suggest that he traveled up and down the East Coast as he was raising money to free his children. And in 1835, Edward Stabler's son, William Stabler, actually wrote a letter to uh, one of his colleagues in Philadelphia. And I'd like to read it to you here. It basically is dated August 13, 1835, and it says, My dear friend, I have heard that William Syfax, a colored man from this place, has gone to, to the north to collect money to purchase the freedom for his children. And it is suspected that he at the, is at the time engaged in forwarding inflammatory pamphlets or papers on the subject of slavery. As I feel anxious that the peace of our, that the peace of our community should be undisturbed and that W. Syfax should keep himself out of danger, I would much be much obliged to thee if thou wouldst let him know that if he comes to Alexandria any time soon, it will be at the peril of his life. The circulation of the publication is producing a great deal of mischief amongst us. The feelings of the community are so outraged that a small occasion only is wanted to produce lawless acts of violence and perfect misrule. If these pamphlets continue to come out, he ought to know that there will be no safety for him in Alexandria at a future time. What caused the people for having suspecting him, I know not, but the impulsion of his guilt in this matter is so strong that he will be looked upon as an actor and treated accordingly. And it goes on to say that 
Uh, if you know where he's at, please try to get word to him to not come back at this particular time. It's really a pretty powerful statement. And there are actually two letters that we found, one that went to Philadelphia and one that went to Boston. So these stablers and the Syfaxes actually knew one another. They supported one another. The, the uh, Quakers trying to free uh, African-Americans and, and Edward, or excuse me, William Syfax working to free his man, uh, family, I think is a pretty amazing story. It is a pretty amazing story, and you said someone assisted you in finding uh, that document? Yes, well, and that's the beauty of doing this work, Bernice, as you you well know, is that um, it really takes work by yourself to to be dedicated enough to do it, and then working with colleagues and people who uh, may be able to help guide you to information or things that they may have in their holdings that might be able to help be uh, helpful. And the the woman that assisted me with, with this, her name is Callie Staff, and she is one of the curators at the apothecary shop, which, which is now a museum in Alexandria. And she uh, sent me a note saying, Steve, you're not going to believe this. And she had been going through the archives there and found this, these two letters. And I was just uh, stunned when I read them. Oh, I would be stunned too. I mean, this this is what I would consider the most amazing find ever. So tell us a little bit more about the Syfaxes and their connection to several historic sites in the District of Columbia and Northern Virginia. Happy to do that. Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, Charles Syfax. William's son had a connection to Mount Vernon. So that would be the one piece. And I had mentioned when we first started that my cousin had mentioned that we were uh, related to George Washington. Well, that turns out not to be the case, but we are related to Martha Washington. So one step hmm. you know, away from that, which is really pretty amazing. Um, the other piece here is that uh, William Syfax actually lived on the property of John uh, John Carlisle, which is there in Alexandria, and it is part of a state uh, Northern Virginia regional park uh, location. And the the Carlisle house is actually a mansion that was owned by John Carlisle. He lived from about 1720 to about 1780. And William Syfax actually lived in one of the outbuildings on this property in the 1820s. He and his family actually lived on the property. So there's some history connected to the Carlisle House. Um, There's also a connection to Arlington, which we can talk about a little bit more in a minute, when Charles Syfax ended up being the butler at the Arlington House, which is now a National Park Service historic site. And then there are... There's a site in Washington, D.C., which is the apothecary. It's not the apothecary shop, Steve. It's the um, Stephen F. Decatur Historic House there on Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C. And it's at this particular location that John Gatsby, who actually was a tavern owner and a hotelier, actually purchased this mansion uh, in about 1836. And he brought with him to this mansion 
10 or 12 enslaved persons, one of which was my third great-grandmother, Nancy Syfax. So I kind of feel that these historic sites, Bernice, are, are almost like, um, you know, kind of connected together. Even though there is no specific connection to them, for me, there's almost a path or a line that connects all of these historic sites together that are worth uh, you know, looking at and for the pu- the public having a chance to to learn more about. Yes, you're right. And when you mention these various historic sites, are there any markers or any information that would say the Syfaxes were here? That is one of the things that is frustrating to me, uh, I, and I'm working on that, actually. Um, you know, we're doing, a, uh, I think, a, a really good job of trying to get the narrative out there to people. Uh, yes. But at this particular point, there are not many placards or waysides that talk about the history. The two things that I'm, I'm really proud of most recently are that with the uh, as you may or may not know, the Arlington House, which is actually called the Arlington House, the Robert E. Lee Memorial, has been closed for the last two years and has been go- undergoing renovation. Um, philanthropist uh, David Rubenstein basically provided about a $13 million grant for the property to be refurbished and for um, the public exhibits to be uh, improved. And so we've been working, SIFAX family members and others have been working with the Park Service to basically prepare a better exhibit space there. And I think one of the things that the public will see when they have a chance to go there once it reopens in the next month or so is a lot more about the people who were enslaved there and a considerable amount about the uh, the SIFAX family. Uh, We're also working uh, as an aside to try to actually change the name of the Arlington House, the Robert E. Lee Memorial, to simply the Arlington House, because we believe that the history is broader than uh, only Robert E. Lee. So that mm-hmm. is a big effort that we are also undertaking. The other thing that I would say at the Decatur House is that I actually was able to write um, a article for the White House Historical Association, which actually owns and runs the Decatur House. And if uh, you're listeners are interested, they could actually Google the name of Nancy Syfax and then Decatur House, and they will see a article that I wrote that's called Nancy Syfax, uh, Life and Legacy. And that provides some information there. And they are currently doing some work to try to improve uh, awareness of slavery in the White House neighborhood that's telling stories of those that were actually enslaved there and other places. And since you mentioned your uh, three times great grandmother, tell us well, was she freed? And if so, when was she freed? Just tell us more about her. Well, we believe that Nancy Syfax and her brother Charles were born about the same time, about 1791, within a year or two each other. Uh, within a a year or two of each other. And and it's interesting that their father, William Syfax, actually lived only a couple of blocks away from where John Gatsby actually owns the Gatsby Tavern in Alexandria. 
What we don't know is how Nancy actually came to be owned by John Gatsby. We actually find Nancy at the Decatur House, the, the home of John Gatsby, in about 1844 when John Gatsby dies. He, she is listed in his will. She's listed mm-hmm. at a value of $100. She's listed as a, basically a, a servant, and she is passed on to his wife, Providence Gatsby. And Providence continues to own the house until she passes away. She passes away in 1858. And at that time, several of the enslaved people are passed on to their, to her children. And Nancy was passed on to her daughter, Augusta Gatsby McBlair. The interesting thing is that Nancy then moves over to the McBlair household, and she is there until 1862. Uh, One of the things that I think a lot of people may be unaware of is that there was actually an Emancipation Act for the city of Washington, D.C. before uh, President Lincoln actually put out the Emancipation Act for for the United States. And uh, this Emancipation Act in 1862 basically was an Emancipation Act, but it was also a Compensation Act, which means somebody was being compensated for uh, what had gone on. And it turns out that the folks that were emancipated were those that actually owned the enslaved people. So for the freedom that was given to something on the order of about 1,500 enslaved people, I think it's more than that. Let me check my numbers here very quickly. I think it was about 3,000 black people, actually. Um, I think that, um, let's see here. I'm looking that up while we're talking. It was, yeah, so she was one of about 3,200 enslaved people in the Washington, D.C. area that were affected by this Emancipation Compensation Act. And what it called for was for people to actually free the people that they had enslaved. So Mm -hmm. that means Nancy Nancy goes free. But Augusta McBlair was able to petition the United States for compensation. And so she actually filed a petition that was sent in to uh, a federal office, and she actually claimed that Nancy Syfax was a fantastic laundress, that she worked in the house, and she was very dedicated, and that she was worth about $800. And Augusta McBlair's petition actually had about eight people on her petition, and the sum of money that she was looking for was several thousand dollars, and Nancy was just one of those. Well, these petitions actually went to a board that reviewed them, and shortly after receiving it and reviewing it, they basically made a ruling that Nancy's value was about $67. And so Augusta McBlair was giving this compensation for the, the work that, that she had lost, 
basically the the worker that she had lost in Nancy Syfax and received this money. And Nancy, while she she received her freedom, uh, received nothing except for her freedom. The interesting thing about that, Bernice, is that interesting that she would she would have a price that was so high, but they actually didn't believe this this value. And they pretty much downgraded the value. Absolutely. Well, the interesting thing is, is it is that the uh, the federal government basically distributed more than a million dollars to people in the District of Columbia. So there was a big pot of resources there that uh, basically compensated people. But it, in most cases, people got about ten percent of what they basically had petitioned to to receive, which is really mm-hmm. pretty amazing. It, it is pretty amazing. And just listening to you share this history, uh, this is perhaps information that people are not aware of, although I know we do celebrate Emancipation Day in, in the District of Columbia, but how right. many people have actually found their ancestors in these documents? So at what point in your own research, did you begin to understand some of this history where you actually could find your ancestors' names in some of these documents? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we originally found Nancy here when we found the will of John Gatsby. That's what was the tip-off, that she was there. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and as we began to ask more questions about trying to go backwards, you know, starting with this current time as we know and then trying to work backwards, uh, we basically learned, you know, learned more about but Nancy. And, and basically here we, we basically, had, you know, found Providence's um, will, which was after John Gatsby. And then we realized that there was a story to be told about her being uh, gifted to her daughter. And for mm-hmm. me, that was really where we began to think about how um, Augusta McBlair basically wanted compensation for her loss uh, and basically filed for the, for the uh, compensation. And we basically looked at the National Archives, and we, we, we began to understand, as we looked at the Emancipation Proclamation, we began to understand that that this other proclamation that we knew had occurred a year before, but we didn't know really what all was in it, we began to pick it apart, and we found all of these names. And and these documents are out there for anyone to look at. Um, there are pages and pages and pages of these 3,185 enslaved people that were a part of that act that people can find if they're so inclined to look. Well, I hope those that are listening will will take a look and and perhaps will also find their ancestors. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about the impact that the Syfaxes had in the, in the Washington D.C. area as well as Virginia and other places. Tell us how the tell us more about the Syfaxes and and what they did during the the Civil War and after the Civil War? 
I'd be happy to. And, and as we talk about that, I'll, I'll just start by saying one of the things that I have been asked to uh, to do with the National Park Service for the the reopening of the uh, the Arlington House is to develop an exhibit. It's going to be a rotating exhibit that will talk about the Syfaxes. And what I've chosen to do is actually talk about the Syfaxes who have been enlisted in uh, America's military. And, and that uh, display, that uh, exhibition will actually talk about some 30 Syfax members who have served in a number of different wars, and it will highlight nine Syfax members who um, three of which were are still living and that were uh, servicemen in World War II, and there are two that were also in the Civil War. And so I'm really excited about sharing that with the public. Uh, one of the earliest Syfaxes that we have uh, that fought in the Civil War is Douglas Syfax. He's actually buried at Arlington National Cemetery, and he is the son of one of William's daughters, William Syfax's daughters. And so one of the young women that he freed when he lived in Alexandria actually went on to serve in the Civil War uh, in the Union Army. Uh, Charles and Mariah Syfax, who were owned by George Washington Park Custis, actually had 10 children who uh, were basically born on the Arlington property. Uh, the first two children were born in 1823 and 1825. They were born enslaved. But in 1825, in the late summer, George Washington Park Custis actually sold Mariah to Edward Stabler, the same Quaker who helped to free William Syfax. Mm -hmm. Amazing story there in terms of how the Quakers and the Stablers in particular were connected with the Syfaxes in one way or another. So 1825, uh, she is freed, and the rest of her eight children are ultimately born free. So they're uh, you know, still living on the property at Arlington. And one of the really amazing things here is that in 1826, George Washington Park Custis gives Mariah Syfax 17 acres of property at the south end of the plantation to live free for the rest of her life. However, her husband Charles continued to be enslaved, and he was enslaved until uh, 1862 when he was freed by his brother-in-law, Robert E. Lee. The children, a number of children went on to do several really pretty amazing things. Their oldest son, his name was also William Syfax, actually uh, after he was freed, uh, kind of was able to receive an education both in Alexandria and in Washington, D.C. He went to work for the Department of Interior, which is actually where I spent my career in the Department of the Interior. And ultimately, he became a messenger for the secretary, and he was asked to become the first head of the Black Public Schools Board of Trustees. And so as a result, he helped to establish Dunbar High School, which is a very uh, prominent high school uh, popular in the Washington, D.C. area. 
And there is a school that's actually named after him that is, is now defunct, but it's actually a, a, a place where there are condominiums. So William Syfax was a very popular, important person for education and history of African Americans in Washington, D.C. from about 1850 to 1900. His younger brother, John Syfax, actually was an elected official. Uh, he actually uh, helped um, make the conditions for African Americans after they were freed that were part of the Freedman's Village at Arlington Cemetery or the Arlington property be a little bit nicer, a little bit better. It was basically a slum where more than a thousand people lived, and uh, John Syfax actually uh, was asked to work with a committee that then worked with the Secretary of War to try to make that experience for freed African Americans better. Other folks that are prominent in the D.C. area are uh, one of my cousins, Mickey Syfax, who was the head of surgery at uh, uh, Howard University for many years. Uh, we also have a congressman, Julian Dixon, who served in Congress until his death in 2000. And he was very active in terms of trying to uh, make policy and law for the USGS, or if not for the USGS, but for the United States uh, against South Africa during the apartheid period and to try to oversee budgets of uh, the Washington, D.C. in general. So a number of SIFAXs have had uh, you know, impact on this area that we're really very proud of and we want to tell the stories about. And when you are telling the story, do you also have photos of the early SIFAX family members? We have a number of early photos, but there are several that are actually, you know, missing that we would love to try to find. And one of the things that we have done is we've actually created, uh, more and more people are doing these days, a large SIFAX family tree that has pictures. It's a poster, basically, that's probably around 15 feet long and about four or five feet tall. And we basically used the family a crowdsourcing process to try to get people to share photographs and share stories of family members that could be added to this uh, this poster, this family tree that would allow us to be able to put the pieces together. In fact, just recently, in the last two or three months, we actually have located another branch of our family, which was uh, one of Charles and Mariah's children, their, their first child, uh, Eleanor, was born in, born in 1821, and she ultimately had family that moved up to New York. And just in the last five months or so, we've actually found a whole other branch of Syfaxes that we hope to bring into the family, so to speak, and uh, try to let them know about the history of their ancestors. Well, you know, I, I I know that you also have a DNA study going along. Is this part of how we you identify other family members? Uh, yes and no. The you know, I do have a DNA study that's going on, and and the primary goal of this study is to basically support the folklore that 
Mariah Syfax is the great-granddaughter of Martha Washington. The goal here ah, is to okay. try to use DNA to show that George Washington Park Custis was her father. And in order to do that, we need the help of ancestors from his white daughter's family, which would be the family of Robert E. Lee. And mm-hmm. so our goal is to try to put that information together so that we can confirm or to prove false that this was uh, not the case. Um, as you may know, as we begin to look six, seven generations back, autosomal DNA, which is the DNA type that we're using here, becomes very difficult to utilize in this for this particular purpose. So we're, we're really up against the wall timeline-wise to try to get people who would be uh, willing to participate in this. The other thing is, is that we're able to take DNA tests with uh, family members who can actually tell us a little bit more about Mariah directly. In fact, uh, one member of this new branch of the family that we found is actually a direct female descendant, descendant of Mariah Syfax. And by testing her mitochondrial DNA, we can actually learn about where Mariah Syfax's mother, grandfather, grandmother, great-grandmother may have come from if they were, in fact, um, enslaved and brought to the United States. And it turns out that by looking at the mitochondrial DNA, I can tell you that Mariah's uh, female ancestors were from uh, Central Western Africa. And so we, we know, we can basically say that, yes, in fact, her um, generations before her were brought to the colonies from, from Africa. So the next pieces are, can we start to put some names to that? We're doing the same thing as we're looking at William Syfax. Can we look at uh, Y-DNA for William Syfax and to try to determine from all the males who have the Syfax, Syfax surname, can we better understand where William's ancestors came from. And that's something that we're looking at right now. So the DNA piece has been very, very interesting. Uh, I'm using it for two or three studies related to the Syfaxes. And it's very helpful in terms of trying to not only connect family members that we know are part of the Syfax line, but how can we reach beyond the Syfax family members to try to create a better understanding and complete the narrative for how we're connected to the first family of the United States? You know, this all just sounds so fascinating, and I just want to ask you two more questions, if I can. One is, since you have identified this whole new branch, was this branch aware of your Syfax connection, or just how did this come about? Wow, it's 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 really pretty amazing because um, I'll start by saying that the family members who are Syfaxes are cousins, distant cousins. They knew of the Syfax story, but mm-hmm. they didn't know that this larger component of the family was out there. So when we found them, they were like, oh, my gosh, can't believe this. In fact, one of the gentlemen that we found who lives in Minnesota is one of the three 
uh, World War II vets. He is 95 years old, and he basically served in World War II and in Korea. And uh, it's an amazing story to talk about. But the way we found them was basically indirectly using DNA. We found a, uh, a person who matched someone else, and by talking with them, we knew that, that their parent had married a Syfax. So they weren't a Syfax, but their uh, half-siblings were. And that put us on to uh, the search for this line of the family, one of the we had been searching for for the last 10 or 12 years because at our last um, uh, family reunion, they were, they were absent. We wanted to try to bring them there. And now for our next family reunion, which is not yet planned, we're going to be excited to have, uh, you know, yet more relatives to know more about their history. And one of the things that I have been just so uh, excited about your family is that you are out there telling that story on C-SPAN and NPR. We're trying. Yes, and then the the nice thing is that the National Conference of Augs is coming up. So tell us, can we expect to hear more about the Syfax family at the National Conference of the African American Historical and Genealogical Society? Thanks for asking that question, Bernice. Uh, Yes, I'm actually going to be giving a talk on the Syfaxes. And I'll tell you this, one of the things that I'm excited about, I get kind of choked up talking about it, is that Uh, One of the goals that I have and I hope to inspire others with is how do we make sure that the narrative for the family is accurate? And there are a number of things about the Syfaxes as they've had the the wonderful opportunity to actually have, you know, be in the national spotlight in some places. They have been a part of uh, national policy in terms of Congress. And yet there are items out there that the narrative is, is incorrect. And so one of the things I'm going to talk about at the, um, the AUGS conference is uh, about the Syfax family, but a little bit about how the narrative sometimes gets hijacked by others not even knowing that that's the case. And things that, that people who are studying their families might consider in terms of trying to be on the lookout to make sure that their uh, narrative is not hijacked as a result of similar kinds of situations. And when you say hijack, let's just say, what does this really mean? Hijacked to me here, so, so w- without giving away what I'm going to talk about in uh, in October, basically there are, um, you know, in the congressional policy, in the congressional record, there are records that basically state that the Syfax received property as a result of it being taken away from them at one point. And then during um, the WPA, you know, in terms of putting people back to work, there were congressmen and congresswomen that were basically saying that this history of the Syfaxes is inaccurate. Mm-hmm. And so those mm-hmm. kinds of things end up in the public record that really – I think, tarnish the history of the Syfaxes and also, um, you know, don't do much for telling, you know, the whole history of our our country. Well, 
I know. So, I will so certainly be listening to your presentation <laughs> in a couple of weeks with Ox and look forward to you to continue just setting the record straight. And that's what you're saying. Let's just set this record straight about the, the Syfax family. Well, do you Tell have any history. closing remarks before we end the show today? Thank you for the opportunity to be here. I really appreciate uh, your leadership, Bernice, and all the things that you do to help um, get the word out there and people are doing. But I would simply say that everybody has a story. The Syfaxes have been very fortunate in that the connections that we have to the first family permits perhaps a little more information to be out there, but there is so much out there to be had and discovered and and told in terms of families and their stories. I just encourage your listeners uh, who are you know working through this and perhaps not sure where to start to to just uh, ask questions, uh, develop partnerships with groups, join a society, and to really uh, continue their search to find their family story. Thank you so much. Those are just right on target parting words. And everybody, remember, your ancestors left footprints. And certainly the Syfax family can tell you about all of the footprints that they have found about their ancestors. So just just remember that when you begin to do your search. I want to just thank you, Steve, for coming on today and having this wonderful conversation. And everyone else, I look forward to you joining me next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and have just a wonderful day. Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much for coming on. Bye-bye. Thank you, Bernice.